السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا كتب عليكم الصيام كما كتب على الذين من قبلكم لعلكم تتقون صدق الله العلي العظيم وصدق رسوله النبي الكريم ونحن على ذلك من الشاهدين والشاكرين والحمد لله رب العالمين as usual, begin with the praise and gratitude of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and really uh, giving us the opportunity, giving us uh, the ability to gather once again before this blessed month of Ramadan comes in. And subhanAllah, you know, may Allah reward all of you. Uh, this is the last weekend before the month of Ramadan and we know how um, we need our, our, our preparations to be done properly and some of that includes you know, being out of the masjid and, and running some errands and whatnot. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward every single one of you for your time. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us forgiveness and accept all what we do till the month of Ramadan and especially in the month of Ramadan. Uh, that being said, you know, this is obviously just a small reminder of, uh, uh, of what our plan or vision is going into this month of Ramadan. And as well as... Uh, uh, you know, some inspiration that a lot of times we feel that we cannot do it. The encouragement that's needed through the inspira- inspiring words of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the habits of the Sahaba radiyallahum when it came to this month of Ramadan. Um, you know, it, it's uh, you know the month of mercy. It is a month of fasting. It's a month of patience. It's a month of Quran. The list will go on and on and on. And there's only certain things that you know we can focus on. But the question is. Do we focus on anything or is it just our fasting during the month of fasting? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us life during this Ramadan and many more Ramadans accepted of fasting and standing, inshaAllah. Uh, that being said, we know it is from the tradition to always you know, start any program, any reminders with the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we have, inshaAllah, our student, Hafiz Saad Iqbal, who will be uh, reciting a few words from the Holy Quran, inshaAllah. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا لا تكونوا كالذين آذوا موسى فبرأه الله مما قالوا وكان عند الله وجيها يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم أعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما إن عرضنا الأمانة على السماوات والأرض والجبال فأبين أن يحملناها فأبين أن يحملنها وأشفقن منها وحملها الإنسان إنه كان ظلوما جهولا ليعذب الله المنافقين والمنافقات والمشركين والمشركات والمشركين والمشركات ويتوب الله على المؤمنين والمؤمنات وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا صَدَقَ اللَّهُ الْعَظِيمُ جزاكم الله خيرا um, You know, it's, it's always this month that we look forward 
to not only reciting the Quran but listening to the Quran. And there was an incident where the Prophet actually asked one of the Sahabi that, can you recite the Quran to me, right? So this is one immediate uh, impact that we, we, we get when we listen to, to the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's very, very important that we make this intent. That not only are we going to recite, memorize all of that, but also when you look at Taraweeh and you look at the wisdom behind that, that we're actually listening to the Quran, not only you know, in the masjid, but in the state of prayer. And it's not only you know, a few words here or there, it's about the entirety of the Quran, that we listen to it in the state of standing in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you know, also we'd like to ask uh, our other student, uh, Mahmoud, if um, he can come recite a few words, uh, 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 a few ayats from the Quran, inshallah. Uh, Mahmoud, he's one of our students. Alhamdulillah, he started Hiv. He's the son of our principal, Sister Norma. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. لو أنزلنا هذا القرآن على جبل لرأيته خاشعا متصدعا من خشية الله وتلك الأمثال نضربها للناس لعلهم يتفكرون هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو عالم الغيب والشهادة هو الرحمن الرحيم هو الله الذي لا إله إلا هو الملك القدوس السلام المؤمن المهيمن العزيز الجبار المتكبر سبحان الله عما يشركون هو الله الخالق البارئ المصور له الأسماء الحسنى يسبح له ما في السماوات والأرض وهو عزيز حكيم جزاك الله خيرا uh, once again, you know, when you talk about the, uh, the, the name Asma'u al-Husna of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, how well do we know him? How well are we able to recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Because the name, Fadu'uhu biha, we use these names to call out to our Creator, to, uh, to call out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are the things, you know, this month comes, this month goes. Do we evaluate, did, am I closer, do I recognize my Creator better than this month before the month of Ramadan. These are those small nuances that come during this month and it goes and if you're not able to benefit and, and elevate yourself in that sense, then really what, what benefit did we get out of this month of Ramadan? Uh, without further ado, you know, calling in uh, Mufti uh, Atif Rabal, he is obviously you know, my older brother. He is inshallah, you know, more involved and inshallah going to be a full-time member of our team of Hira. So, um, you know, there's not much introduction that is needed. Uh, he has come here many times and, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from him and his family. You know, it's not easy of traveling and, and, and everything else that's going on with the month of Ramadan right around the corner. But yet when it comes to spreading of the deen, uh, educating knowledge of the sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, and the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, our speakers and alhamdulillah our guests that are here, they constantly give that preference always over their personal benefit and, and, and their personal you know, time. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward everyone greatly. And, and you know, just before, inshallah, if you can come. But just before, one of the things I do want to call, you know, there's our, our, our tech team here that's here with Hamza and Idris and Brother Ishaq, and then you have, uh, you know, Sister Norma and all these uh, uh, volunteers that are working behind the scenes. A lot of times they don't get recognized. But may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward everyone and all of you 
for giving your time and, and really what is the intent? It is to get some knowledge, some reminder, really, for dhikr, right? Remind, because it, it's beneficial to the believers. So at least when we head into this month, we're giving something to encourage us and inspire us each other. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, nahmaduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'afiruhu wa nu'minu bihi wa natawakkalu alayhi. Wa na'udhu billahi min shiruri anfusina wa min sayyati a'malina. من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن سيدنا وحبيبنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في محكم كتابه الكريم بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا كتب عليكم الصيام كما كتب على الذين من قبلكم لعلكم تتقون صدق الله العظيم As we approach the month of Ramadan we can recall the days leading up to the month of Ramadan in the previous years and the years before that, and the years before that, until the time we gain consciousness all the way till now, we can recall Ramadan coming and going. The passage of time, the seasons of this world, the time coming and going, it's a system of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to in the Quran as Sunnatullah, the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created this world, He designed it with a system. And part of that system is we are restricted with two restrictions. As we know, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, He said, Ad-dunya sijunul mu'min, that the world is a prison for a believer. We're all inmates. We can talk about this hadith in a lot of great detail, but just to highlight, when we say imprisonment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, spiritually, religiously, put a lot of restrictions on us. What we must do, what we should do, what we cannot do, and what we should not do. But when it comes to humans in general, from this world, for the hereafter, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala restricted us with two things. Number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala restricted us with time. And number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala restricted us with space. These are the two restrictions that we are living with on a daily basis. I don't want to go into a lot of detail about these restrictions and what they mean for us and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put these restrictions in place for our own betterment and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will liberate every single human of these two restrictions in the hereafter. That's not the purpose of the topic and this is something that we would spend the entire evening just talking about that. So not getting into the details of those restrictions 
But one thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala restricted us with is time. And that time from the day we came into this world, from the moment we entered this world, it was assigned the number of days and moments that we have in this world. And once those moments finish, we will no longer be allowed to even breathe one more time. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions clearly in the Quran that when the time comes, no soul will have the ability to move forward or go back. The time comes and that is, that is it. And we must leave this world. That being said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this world created a system in which no person and no condition is everlasting. As time proceeds, conditions, situations, seasons, everything changes. As we know, some moments ago, we were in the midst of winter, and it was just surprisingly cold. And now, we have entered spring, and it's unpredictable weather, and then some time will go by, it would be very, very hot, and then the cycle moves on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the system of day and night. And we're in the day, and soon we'll enter the night, then we enter the night, and soon we'll be in day again. This process, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions these different changes in the Quran in so many different ways that it almost seems oversimplified. Sometimes in the hadith of tafsir, we are teaching and we are telling the students that, you know, these uh, ayahs are something that we already studied before. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talked about this in Surah Al-Baqarah and now in Surah Al-Imran, He will repeat it. And then Surah Al-Nisa will come, He will repeat it again. And now we're, you could be towards the end of the Quran and we would realize that those same messages are being repeated. It's almost so simple that we don't want to repeat the tafsir. But subhanallah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this Quran to be an everlasting source of guidance till the day of judgment. And it seems so simple for us. But the reality is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us that these messages are something that if we could just focus on, it would be enough for our eternal guidance, it would be enough for our spiritual upbringing. Just focusing on the, the simplest things of the Quran, the simplest examples, just the simple signs that we see. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in uh, Surah Al-Ghashiyah talks about the earth, the mountains, the earth, simple, simple examples. And we think, what is so surprising about these? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning that these examples are enough for our eternal guidance. When we talk about seasons, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions these types of changes in the Quran to let us know that nothing is forever. Just the way we have seasons in this world from cold to hot, we have, we have seasons that change in the business world. When we look at the business world, we'll see that there's sometimes where business 
this is the time where the businessmen, they realize that this is the time to make money. This is when the entire sales are highest and it's at its peak. And similarly, there would be certain seasons in different aspects. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates these seasons for our spiritual uplift as well. And that is these months, just the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring the month of Ramadan. That is upon us. And soon after the month of Ramadan, immediately the day after Eid al-Fitr, the Ayyam al-Hajj will start. And those Ayyam al-Hajj will go on for over two months and then we'll have the season of the Hijjah, the Hajj season. And these are the seasons in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us that we need to reconnect back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And yesterday, in the Jum'ah lecture, we were talking about how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the system of the world in a process. Even creating Adam alayhi salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not create him immediately. And when it comes to creating the, the earth and the heavens and the trees, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about it in great detail that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created these elements in two days. And he created these elements in another two days. And he created these elements in another two days. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, many places in the Quran, talks about that خَلَقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ فِي سِتَّةِ أَيَّامِ Now, when we ponder over this, that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala announces in the Quran, إِذَا قَضَى أَمْرًا فَإِنَّمَا يَقُولُ لَهُ كُنْ فَيَكُونَ We're discussing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in which he announces that when he decrees and decides anything, he only has to say kun and it is done. He just has to say be it and it's done. The Mufassirun rahimahullah, they say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not even need to say kun. So why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take this many days to create the earth and the heaven? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take so many days to create Adam alayhi salam? Why is it that when a child is brought into this world, it's a process of nine months or more. Why is all of this there? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a system in place that everything must go through this system and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is letting us know that this is the process in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make things happen. Just the way in our physical sense, in our health conditions, in our work, in any element of this world, there is a process, there is a process to actually gaining some type of heights and some type of uh, uh, prosperity in our spiritual aspect as well. When we look at Rasulullah he received prophethood at the age of 40. From the age of 40, Rasulullah for 13 consecutive years worked in Makkah al-Mukarramah. And subhanAllah, if we just take 13 years of our life and put it into an effort, we would expect that there would be amazing results. Now if you were to look at Rasulullah position, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling Rasulullah that you are the last prophet and you will through you 
there would be eternal guidance till the day of judgment. And now, the first 13 years of his life, Rasulullah is working tirelessly. And after 13 years, the situation is so bad that now he is forced to leave the town that he is working in. Subhanallah, leaving Makkah al-Mukarramah after a two-week visit of Umrah, it's so difficult. Imagine being born and raised and spending 53 years of your life there. And now being forced to leave out of that situation, you, would, you can only realize that how difficult it must be for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminding us that this is not a situation that is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, kun fayakun. It's a process. It's a process. And now, if we were to look at, even at that time, how many Sahaba radhanullah ta'ala al-Majma'een are there? Very few compared to what is going to happen towards the end of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's life. If we look at Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, in about the 5th, 6th Hijri, he sees a dream. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about it in the Quran, لَقَدْ صَدَقَ اللَّهُ رَسُولَهُ الرُّؤْيَا بِالْحَقِّ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had made the dream come true that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam saw. So that dream that he saw was, he was performing Umrah. So he mentioned it to the Sahaba radhanullah ta'ala al-Majba'een, I saw that we were doing Umrah, so we should go and do Umrah. When Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam went to do Umrah, and we know the famous story of the, the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah, that the Meccans did not let them in. I don't want to go into the detail, but even at that time, it's so difficult for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Sahaba radhanullah ta'ala al-Majma'een that they have been rejected from entering to do the ibadah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the city of Maktatul Mukarramah, where they were born and raised. But the point that I wanted to make is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when he was there, the total number of Sahaba that were with him were 1,400 only. 1,400 Sahaba. A year and a half later, a year and a half later, when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam came back for the conquest of Makkah, there were 10,000 Sahaba in just a year and a half. So when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is being told that it's a process, this is the process that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is being talked about. That now, 10,000 Sahaba, but it doesn't end there. Three years later, in the 10th Hijri, Rasulullah performs the one and only Hajj. And in that Hajj, there is 124,000 Sahaba. Subhanallah, we talked about it from receiving prophethood at the age of 40, all the way till he was 56, 57, when he goes for Umrah, even later, he is only accompanied by 1400 Sahaba. And then after that, 10,000. And after that, 124,000 within a few years. It's a process. But the main point that I wanted to make was when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was closer to receiving prophethood, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, 
she mentions this hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari and the words that she uses to make a point Immediately before receiving prophethood Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha mentions that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would love it was almost made dear to him to be alone he just loved being alone he just wanted to be alone and subhanallah this is something that we must relate to in the month of Ramadan Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam throughout his life ever since establishing a masjid Masjid al-Nabawi migrating to Madinatul Munawwara and establishing a masjid ever since that time he never ever missed i'tikaf sitting in the masjid when we are thinking about i'tikaf we always have this excuse that I have too much work or I am too busy and subhanallah if we were to just look at Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's firmness on i'tikaf we would realize that there was no responsibility greater than the responsibility of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and there was no person who is more busier than Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam yet he took out time in some years he actually did i'tikaf for the entire month of Ramadan but the question always comes back to is why and this is something that is really really important that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam when Allah is preparing him to receive the prophethood to actually receive the first revelation what is the first thing that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is inclined towards is being alone is being away from society if we were to just look at where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam would go to be alone even today when we look at the cave of Hira from the actual city of Mecca it's so far that we could not even walk even today let alone the climb we're not even able to climb most of us but even to go there is so far away that even today is considered too far away from the city so imagine in that time where the haram was so small the city of Mecca was so small even at that time Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam went so far away from the city that he could not hear or see or or be or be watched by anyone and he stayed in seclusion in that cave and subhanallah being in Kentucky we all had the privilege of visiting a cave or we should have and few things few characteristics of a cave is that when you're inside of a cave you're not affected by the outside temperature by the outside light and the outside sounds subhanallah if you were to just take the top 3 characteristics of a cave you're not affected by the outside temperature outside climate it has its own climate inside you're not affected by outside noise regardless of how much chaos is being caused around the world you're protected inside and you're not affected by the outside light 
you don't know if it's day or night, it does not matter, you have your own day and night within this cave. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is going there, not just for a few moments to, uh, to sit there and ponder. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, according to the narration of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha in Sahih al-Bukhari, she, he used to go, he used to pack food for days and he would go there and he will not come back until that, that amount of food is uh, finished and he would only come back to replenish food and go back again. And subhanAllah, if we were to think about this a little bit, this is before receiving prophethood. There is no salah, there is no adhkar, there is no Qur'an, there is no psalm, there is nothing. So what is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam doing in this cave? All by himself for, for days and days. Away from his family, away from society, away from work, away from everything. He's sitting in a dark cave and just pondering. And this is what we must understand going into the month of Ramadan, that this is not something that we can take lightly. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even before the arrival of Islam, before the arrival of Qur'an, before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam receives prophethood, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is preparing that if we must want change in our life, it must start. It must start with pondering over our spiritual standing. We have to ponder over that, and if we cannot ponder over that, we will not be able to ever take the next step. We must evaluate. We must understand the situation that we're in and then we are able to look forward to how to bring about that change in our life. Otherwise, we will never be able to. We will just be moving with the same flow that everybody else is moving with. We will never be able to understand. SubhanAllah, in one of the verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa to advise the kuffar of that time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ Say to the people, Ya Rasulullah, إِنَّمَا أَعِذُكُمْ بِوَاحِدَةً I'll give you one advice. And subhanAllah, the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala phrases this ayah, it's amazing because if you were to look at the entire Qur'an is only nasaih. It's only advice. So why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, I will give you one advice. And Mufassirun Rahmullah, they go into a lot of detail about when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses an example like this or uses a statement like this, it's usually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling us that let me summarize it for you. Let me make it easy for you so that way you can understand. So first we must understand that when it was said and how and who it was said to. So Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam when he is preaching and talking to the people of Makkah and he is advising them and he's telling them that this is what you must do. This is what you must do. And now they are restricting themselves and not believing in what Rasulullah has to say. Majority of them had a separate agenda as to why they are not accepting Islam. Some of them they're afraid that they're going to lose their leadership. Some of them are afraid that they are going to be ab 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 abused by other people. 
Some of them are afraid for their families and many other reasons why they were afraid. And they were not paying attention to what Rasulullah is saying, but rather focusing on how it would impact us. And this is almost like the approach that we have today, that when we hear something and we know what's the right thing to do, but instead of acting upon and thinking about what, doing what's the right thing, we try to focus on thinking about how it would impact us rather than doing the right thing. And when we start focusing on that, we lose the bigger focus and we lose focus on what's right, then we only focus on what, what, what we could do to continue to enjoy the benefits of our life. Anyways, this was, this was the situation of the kuffar. So Rasulullah is ordered to tell them that I understand that you're in a situation in which you cannot decide whether you should accept the message of Islam or not. Whether you should believe that I am a true messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not. And at that point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends these verses of the Quran, إِنَّمَا أَعِذُكُمْ بِوَاحِدَةِ I will give you one advice. أَن تَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ مَثْنَى وَفُرَادَى ثُمَّ تَتَفَكَّرُوا Subhanallah, one of the most amazing ayahs of the Qur'an when it comes to any person's individual reform or reform in general. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَن تَقُومُوا لِلَّهِ مَثْنَى وَفُرَادَى ثُمَّ تَتَفَكَّرُوا That get into pairs of two, مَثْنَى Find that one person that you trust most, just one person, that you would trust him for any decision that you were going to make. If a person is thinking of applying for a job, or moving, or leaving a job, or starting a company, or shutting down a company, or any worldly manner that we can think of, or a spiritual manner, we would always have that one person that we could go back to, whether it's our parents, whether it's our siblings, whether it's our imam, whether it's our brothers, or whether it's our Muslim brothers, any person that we feel that attachment to, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the kuffar, find that one person. And if you cannot find even that one person that is truthful in giving you opinion, then stay alone. And what is that you have to do? then ponder over what Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam has to say. And you will find your answer. SubhanAllah, famous hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, istafti qalbak. Ask yourself, ask your own heart, and you would realize what is the right thing to do. And when we are entering in this month of Ramadan, SubhanAllah, two years ago, we were told, you're not allowed to enter the masajid. There are locks on the masajid. We're not allowed to come to the masjid. And at that time, each and every single one of us felt like we were homeless. Our spiritual connection with our deen was broken. Brothers and sisters who are used to coming to the masajid five times a day, some three times a day, some once or twice a day, at least once or twice a week, at least for the month of Ramadan, for some brothers and sisters, at least for the, 
once a year, twice a year for the Eid, even that small connection was broken. And we actually felt like we lost everything. And if we can just sit down and think about that time when we were told you cannot enter the masjid the entire month of Ramadan, we were completely broken. But subhanAllah, when we are talking about now the doors of masajid are open again, we must ask ourselves, how excited are we to go back? It actually gives us an understanding that where do we stand spiritually? And subhanAllah, I give this example all the time. A group of people in the time of Rasulullah they decided that they're not going to help Rasulullah in any of his travels. Whenever he traveled to, um, to protect himself from the enemies, whenever he would travel for anything, they, they would not travel with them. And they would always tell the people who were traveling with him that look, you're going to, to fight and you might be killed. This is suicide. Don't go. And they would mention these, type of, these types of statements and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala quotes those statements in the Quran. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions something very, very important. And that is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَرِحَ الْمُخَلَّفُونَ بِمَقْعَدِهِمْ خِلَافَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ Those people who stayed behind of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, فَرِحَ They became happy. They were happy that they were able to get away and they were not forced to go to war with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They were not forced to go and be with the Sahaba radhwanullah ta'ala al-Majba'een. So they found an excuse to be home. And they became happy. But subhanallah, the Mufassirun rahimahullah, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them. They go into the detail that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used the word mukhallaf. He didn't use the word mukhallif. Because in Arabic, the word mukhallif is a person who stays behind. And the word mukhallaf is a, is a person who has been kept behind. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you're happy that you stayed behind, but let me remind you, it's not that you stayed behind, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept you behind. It wasn't your decision. It was a decision that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose that you will not be with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the sahaba. You are not good enough to be in that company, therefore I kept you behind. And subhanallah, today, if we were to have an excuse for us to not attend the masjid, and we say, I will not go to the masjid because I'm not feeling well. And we tell ourselves, we tell our parents, our siblings, our community that I have a valid excuse. We must be very, very careful. Maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might tell us that you're not staying behind, I'm keeping you behind. SubhanAllah, there's a very, very important uh, a lesson for us in this ayah because if we were to think about there was a, it's a very, uh, uh, I'm not sure if it's, uh, uh, if it's uh, a valid story or not. Once there was a person, he was walking by, he wasn't very religious. He was walking with his worker. And the worker says, you know, I, uh, I know we have work to do, but I heard the adhan, I want to go pray salah in the masjid. 
So no, we have too much work to do. He said, please, it's going to take me a little bit. I'm going to just pray salah in the masjid. Now, this uh, employer of his, he was, he was not a very uh, religious person. So he said, okay, hurry up, go. So he goes inside and he, he prays. Alhamdulillah, he's attending the jama'ah. And now this person is waiting outside. And you know, even a five-minute salah might feel like 50 minutes for a person who doesn't have patience for such a thing. So now, from outside, he screams inside. He said, what's holding you up inside? He said, the same thing that's holding you outside. This is something we must understand. That the same being, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who's allowing us to come to the masjid, He is stopping certain people from entering the masajid. We must always act, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we never be put in a situation regardless of what happens. Regardless of what happens, that we'll never be put in a situation that will not that we will ever be deprived of the company of awliya Allah, the company of the ulama, the, the company of the people in the masajid, the, the, the actual place in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ever deprives us from what he calls Baytullah, the houses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Amr bin As. Inshallah, I'll end with this. Amr bin As radiallahu an. You know, one of the greatest Sahaba. And you know, this is some, someone that he's, he is titled Fatih al-Misr, the conqueror of Misr. In his deathbed, he said, my life in summary is in three phases. My life in summary was in three phases. Before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I used to feel that I would do anything to finish off Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the most hated person on this, in this world, on the face of this earth, was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Had I died in that situation, I would definitely be in hellfire. And then a time came in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave me hidayah and I became Muslim. And after becoming Muslim, I was with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And during the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I was in a situation that I knew if I had passed away then, I would definitely be in Jannah. Then he says, after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam passed away, I have made decisions. I had been put in a position of power. I have been doing things, deciding for myself because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is no longer here. I do not know in which place I would be going to, whether it's towards Jannah or whether it's towards Jahannam. Subhanallah, this is Amr bin As radiallahu an. And imagine our situation. We were kids at one time, and at that time we could have said, that at that time if we passed, we were in better hands. But we, now from that time till today, we're in a situation, and until now, I, I always say this, that until now we always heard that age is just a number. And COVID really made that a reality, that age is just a number. Because if you look at the people who are passing away, age is truly a number. If we think that we're only in our 20s or 30s, and we have a, a much longer life to live, that is not possible. 
we understand that this is, uh, this is the situation that we're in. So we are, just the way Amr bin Asr said, we're in a situation, we do not know in which, we, which way we are going. Let's make this Ramadan. Let's make these situations that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us every day, every month, every year to utilize this month of Ramadan and make sure that we've come out with a spiritual change that will change our lives forever. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to bring about that spiritual change and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to really understand what, what it truly means to live another day. Ameen wa akhir da'wana and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Inshallah, without any further uh, discussion, I would like to mention Imam Izhar. Alhamdulillah, he is visiting us uh, from uh, uh, Florida, uh, South Florida, for this speci- specific program. Inshallah, he will, all, he will have this session and we'll have the Q&A after Maghrib as well. And we'll have the Khatira, Inshallah, after Fajr. And uh, Inshallah, we would, uh, we would like to call uh, Imam Izhar. And Inshallah, we will uh, we'll continue this uh, session. And then Inshallah, we'll take a break at, uh, before Maghrib. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, wa nasta'inu wa bihi wa natawakkalu alayhi. Wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusana wa min sayyati a'malina. Man yahdihillahu falamudillala. Wa man yudillahu falamudillala. Wa nashadu an la ilahi illallah wahdahu la sharika lah. Wa nashadu anna sayyidina wa maulana muhammadan abduhu rasooluh. Amma ba'd, faqad qala Allah ta'ala fi al-Qur'an al-Majid. Ba'd a'udhu billahi min shaykhun al-Rajim. وَلِمَنْ خَافَ مَقَامُ رَبِّهِ جَنَّتَانِ فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ ذَوَاتَا أَفْنَانِ فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ فِيهِمَا عَيْنَانِ تَجْرِيَانِ فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ فِيهِمَا مِنْ كُلِّ فَاكِهَةٍ زَوْجَانِ فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ رَبِّكُمَا تُكَذِّبَانِ وقال عليه الصلاة والسلام إذا جاء رمضان فتحت أبواب الجنة وغلقت أبواب النار وسفلت الشياطين وعن يقول الله عز وجل أعددت لعبادي الصالحين ما لا عين رأت ولا أذن سمعت ولا خطر على قلب بشر وقروا إن شئتم فلا تعلم نفس ما أخفي لهم من قرة أعين جزاء بما كانوا يعملون وقال أيضا موضع سوت في الجنة خير من الدنيا وما فيها أو كما قال عليه الصلاة والسلام First and foremost I would like to welcome and thank all of you for attending this program May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward all of you immensely. I would also like to thank all of the responsible brothers and sisters for organizing this event. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward them immensely as well. Amma ba'd, as to what follows. Inshallah, the topic that I'm going to be discussing with everyone tonight is actually one of my favorite topics. And this is the topic of Jannah, a description of paradise. In other words, I will be taking you on a quick, short tour of paradise. Now before I jump into this topic, let me mention quick reasons as to why I'm discussing this right now. The first reason is that before I came in, some of you suggested that I speak on this topic. So this is reason number one. The other reason is because it is directly and indirectly Related to Ramadan because when the month of Ramadan commences, all of the gates of Jannah, and there are eight main gates of paradise, all of them are flung open, and each gate 
it is allocated to a different act of worship. So if you perfect siyam, you will be caught from Babur Rayyan. If you perfect your salah, your qiyam, you will be called from Babu Salah. If you perfect your charity, you will be called from Babu Sadaqah, the gate of charity. Since all of these good deeds are usually done especially in Ramadan. We do it throughout the year, but of course we enhance our ibadah especially in Ramadan. So I thought it would be a good motivational topic since Jannah is a topic that is discussed and described not just dozens but hundreds of times in the Quran. Hardly would you read two or three pages of the Quran except that you come across some mention, some description of paradise. So the fact that Jannah has been mentioned hundreds of times in the Quran, this shows that this is also an important topic which deserves our attention. Another reason which is also very important, and this is a generic reason, and that is that many of us, we go through hardships and difficulties in life. Now those who don't have the concept of the hereafter, about Jannah and paradise, it becomes very difficult for them to cope with these hardships and tests of life. But if you're a believer, if you're Muslim, if your Iman is strong, if you are always looking towards Jannah, because after all, our end goal is the pleasure of Allah and entry into paradise. If you always have this in the back of your mind, all of the tests of this life, they become, relatively speaking, easier to bear. And I always remind myself the the phrase or the comment or the statement of Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah who used to say and for those of you who might know a little bit about me and what had happened to me this statement of his always resonates with me in the past and even now he used to say and we know just like many scholars of the past that they were persecuted Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah he was no exception he was wrongfully imprisoned. And when he was in prison, he used to say this famous statement of his. He would say, what could my enemies do to me? If they kill me, wrongfully, innocently, for no reason, I hope to gain shahada in the sight of Allah. If they sent me into exile, I have more time for tourism, to see the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if they imprison me, I have more time to do dhikr, the dhikr of Allah and recite the Quran, the book of Allah. So what could my enemy do to me? My Jannah is in my heart that they cannot take away from me. So as a believer, we should always have this perception that all of these hardships and difficulties are a test of life. And it is always a win-win situation for the believer. You know why? Because if Allah blesses you with ease, comfort, and all of the worldly blessings of this life, and you're grateful, Allah will give you even more, and you'll be rewarded with Jannah. And if Allah tests you with hardships and difficulties, and you remain patient, you display sabr, you'll be rewarded with the higher levels of Jannah. 
So it is always a win-win situation for the believer. And I personally feel this topic of Jannah, we should always remind ourselves of it because it puts things in perspective, right? And it makes it, relatively speaking, easier to bear the hardships of this world. So with this rather long introduction, let me jump right into the topic of paradise, a tour of Jannah. Let us begin with the first person who would enter Jannah. And the first person who would enter Jannah would be none other than the one who is Sayyidul Mursaleen, Khatimul Anbiya, Habibin al Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It would be none other than the one who is the leader of all of mankind, the seal of all of the prophets, our beloved Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. In the hadith of Sahih Muslim, it is mentioned that our Prophet وسلم, he will come and knock on the gate of Jannah. And the gatekeeper would ask, who is there? And our Prophet وسلم, would mention his name. And the gatekeeper would say, I was commanded not to open it to anyone else before you. So our Prophet وسلم, will be the first one to enter Jannah. Then his ummah will be the first ones to enter paradise. Even though we are the last ones to come, but the first ones to enter, insha'Allah. The hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim, We are the last ones to come, chronologically speaking, in this world, but the first ones to enter in the next life, to Jannah. Number three, not only would his ummah be the first ummah to enter, they would also make up two-thirds of the people of Jannah. In the hadith of At-Tirmidhi, the Prophet wasallam said, the inhabitants of paradise will be divided into 120 rows. Now, these will not be like your typical rows of the masjid, which has, mashallah, 60, 70, 80, 100, 200 people. Each saf might have millions or hundreds of millions of people, perhaps even billions. So all of the inhabitants of Jannah will be divided into 120 rows. 80 of those rows will belong to the ummah of the Prophet ﷺ. When you enter Jannah, you would notice it has eight main gates, eight main doors. Each door is allocated to a different act of worship. So those who have perfected Siyam, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to speak on this topic, that this topic in itself should motivate you to do good deeds and to increase your ibadah in Ramadan. Because all of these doors are directly or indirectly linked to Ramadan. Because these are the ibadahs, generally speaking, we do in Ramadan. So one door is allocated to those who perfect their siyam. Perfecting your siyam means you have quality and quantity in this act of worship. For everything else, perhaps you are just doing the bare minimum. You are just passing with passing grades. But when it came to siyam, this is where you excelled in. If you fall into this category, you will be called 
from the gate of Ar-Rayyan. And this is the only gate that we know the name of from the authentic hadith. Ar-Rayyan means that which quenches your thirst. Because in order to enter it, you must temporarily deprive yourself of food and water in this world for some time. So this is Ar-Rayyan. If you have perfected your salah, and perfecting your salah means you are not just only praying your farad prayer, you're doing your tahajjud and qiyam, and Ramadan is right around the corner, your qiyamul layl, tahajjud, taraweeh, all of this extra prayer. You have quality and quantity. Quantity, we understand. Quality means you have khushu, focus, concentration in your salah. If you have perfected this act of worship, you will be called from Babu Salah. If you have perfected your charity, meaning, and right after the Salah, by the way, we're going to be speaking about charity and about the mandatory form of charity, which is zakat, which is the bare minimum. And many people have questions about this. And unfortunately, many people, they are either careless about this. It is said many people in the Ummah, they don't pray Salah. And an even larger percentage, they don't give their charity. Okay? Their obligatory charity, which is zakat. So anyways, those who have perfected sadaqah, charity, they will be called from the gate of charity. And so on and so forth. So you have all of these eight gates. The Prophet wasallam said, the distance between the gateposts of Jannah is the distance of 40 years. Yet there will come a time that it will be crowded because of the number of people entering Jannah. Once you enter Jannah, you would realize that many of the things are similar to the things of this world, but only by name. The nature and the reality of it will be completely different. In other words, Whatever we enjoy, all of the bodily pleasures of this world are but a small sample of what Allah has prepared for the believers in the next life. Abu Hurairah narrates that the Prophet said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَعَدَدْتُ لِعِبَادِيَ الصَّالِحِينَ مَا لَا عَيْنٌ رَأَتْ وَلَا أُذْنٌ سَمِعَتْ وَلَا خَطَرَ عَلَى قَلْبِ بَشَرْ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I have prepared for my servants that which no eyes has ever seen, no ears has ever heard of, and no heart or mind has ever imagined. If you wish, you may recite the verse of the Quran. There are also certain concepts in Jannah that we don't even have in this world, right? And of course, even the concepts we understand, it's only similar to the concepts of this world by name. But the reality of it will be completely different. Because think about it. If different words were used, then for us, it will be like a foreign language. We wouldn't be able to relate to it. So that's why many of the things are similar in name. But again, the reality of it will be different. What do I mean by this? Let's give some examples. We will have beautiful gardens, trees in Jannah. And this is one of the most common description in the Quran. Jannatin tajri min tahti al-anhar. Because this is something we all enjoy. 
This is ingrained in our fitrah, in our nature. We like a beautiful uh, you know, scenery. If we want to buy a house, some of us or many of us, maybe all of us, we like to see the backyard, whether it has a pool or not, does it have a lake view or not. Right? We look into these things because it is in our nature, this beautiful scenery of having gardens underneath which rivers flow. So you would have trees, but not like the trees of this world. The Prophet said, مَا فِي الْجَنَّةِ شَجَرَةٌ إِلَّا وَسَاقُهَا مِنْ There isn't a single tree in Jannah except that the trunk of it is made out of gold. There will be beautiful palaces, mansions, houses in Jannah, but not like the houses of this world. The material is made of brick and mortar. Rather, it will be made of alternating material, a brick of gold and a brick of silver. You will have tents in Jannah, but not like the tents of this world. That a believer would have a tent made from a hollowed pearl. Now how big is pearl? It's very small. But remember, Jannah is a different dimension. The sizes are of a different dimension. The size of this pearl will be 60 miles in width and 60 miles in length. And the Prophet said, a believer would have two gardens, two special gardens, in which everything in it, all of the utensils, will be made of gold. And he would have two other special gardens in which all of the utensils in it will be made out of silver. And if you read Surah Al-Rahman, especially the last section, it's very descriptive of Jannah. Surah Al-Rahman, Surah Waqi'ah, Surah Al-Insan, also known as Surah Al-Dahar, they're very descriptive. And even this concept of four Jannahs, two superior Jannahs and two regular Jannahs, even this concept is in Surah Al-Rahman as well. The first two gardens, وَلِمَنْ خَافَ مَقَامَ رَبِّهِ جَنَّةً the one who fears his Lord will have two gardens. If you look at that description, it is superior to the description mentioned later. Besides them, or you can translate it below them. Below them are two other gardens. What are they? Which is the regular description of springs. Springs gushing forth. It's a beautiful description. But that's a regular description we're used to. Over there, Ainani Tajriyan, Fihima Ainani Tajriyan. In it are two springs that are flowing, which is a higher and a more superior description. Anyways, if, if you pick up the Quran, you would know what I mean. If you compare, there seems to be a higher description to the two gardens that are mentioned earlier. So you would have this in paradise. You would have concepts in Jannah. I was mentioning earlier to the students concepts that perhaps we may not be able to relate to now. Or at least I could say the brothers 
we may not be able to relate to. Okay? In one hadith, the Prophet said, there will be a marketplace in Jannah where people can go shopping. Right? Now I know maybe the brothers, we may not really <laughs> relate to this point, but maybe the sisters could relate to it, that they will be shopping in Jannah as well. There will be a marketplace. The hadith in at tirmidhi But what type of marketplace? It's not going to be uh, selling merchandise, goods. Rather, there will be images in this marketplace. Right? And you know, in this world, many people are always conscious of themselves. They're always, you know, looking at themselves in the mirror. They're always aware of themselves. And they always want to be very presentable. They're always taking care of themselves. Sometimes a little bit too much, right? Because they always want to be presented in a beautiful manner. In Jannah, you would have these images and beautiful images. And you just simply point at one of them and you actually become that image. This is an hadith in At-Tirmidhi. You would have, what's another concept that we enjoy? A bodily pleasure. I will, speaking from my personal experience, when it comes to a nice, delicious cuisine, food, this is something we all enjoy. So this is also perhaps the second or maybe the first most common description uh, in the Quran about Jannah. So one is Jannat in Tajrim in the other one is about delicious food. This is in the Quran, in Surah Al-Waqi'ah, وَفَاكِهَةِ مِمَّا يَتَخَيَّرُونَ وَلَحْمِ طَيْرِ مِمَّا يَشْتَهُونَ right? Fruits that they desire and the flesh of birds that they wish for. Whatever type of uh, meat that you desire, whether it is, I don't know what type of chicken, whatever types of chicken that you like, barbecue chicken or baked chicken or this chicken or that chicken, all of that you would have. Going back to Surah Al-Rahman, if you look at the last two gardens, it says, You would have fruits, pomegranates, date palms. You would have varieties of fruits, right? What do you have in the first two gardens? In it, there will be varieties of every type of fruit. So it's one thing to have different fruits, right? Strawberries, bananas, melons, watermelons, all of these. It's another thing to have varieties. And we sometimes get a sense of this, right? If you go shopping, like for example, you know, I'm a simple person. If I go shopping to go, you know, grocery shopping, sometimes I'm confused because there's so many varieties. When it comes to picking, uh, for example, grapes, you have so many varieties. You have the, the big grapes, the small grapes, you have the seedless grapes, you have the purple grapes, you have the cotton candy grapes, you have so many different varieties. When it comes to uh, the mango season, and I was mentioning earlier, in South Florida, even though it is known to be, it is known for oranges, but when Ramadan is around the corner, mashallah, many of the musallis, they're always exchanging mangoes with each other. It's very common. And, and each one is different. There's so many different varieties. It is said that there are about 30 different varieties of mangoes. Perhaps maybe even more. But this is what they have discovered or this is how they have categorized it. Well, in Jannah, you'd have thousands of varieties of every type of fruit. So all of this will be in Jannah and even more. I would like to mention this one hadith. There's much more to it. But one hadith 
which is mentioned in Bukhari and Muslim, which has some interesting points of benefit. And then I want to conclude with some few remarks. The hadith is narrated by Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, where he mentions that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, in awwala zumratin yadkhuluna al-jannah ala surat al-qamari laylat al-badri. The first batch of people, the first group of people to enter Jannah, their faces will be shining bright like the full moon in the mirror of the night. ثُمَّ الَّذِينَ يَلُونَهُمْ كَأَشَدِّ كَوْكَبٍ دُرِّيٍّ فِي السَّمَاءِ إِضَاءَةً The second group to enter, their faces will be shining bright like the brightest star in the mirror of the night. قُلُوبُهُمْ عَلَىٰ قَلْبِ رَجْلٍ وَاحِدٍ Their hearts will be like the heart of one person. لَا إِخْتِلَافَ بَيْنَهُمْ وَلَا تَبَاغُدًا They will have no grudge or animosity between them. This tells us a very important point of benefit. That you can have people in this world who are very good. Overall, they're good Muslims. But sometimes because of misunderstandings, miscommunications, they don't get along. You know, and if you study history, it happened even amongst the greats, right? You know, and again, not to go into controversial points, but uh, even amongst you know scholars and even amongst the Sahaba, there were some differences. But what does Allah Subhanahu wa Taala say regarding these misunderstandings? So there will be no animosity towards another person. Okay, now the next part, it's always very difficult for an imam to say, and usually they try to kind of skip over it, but of course, being an imam, and of course it's a hadith of the Prophet so I have to mention everything, I cannot just gloss over it. Um, and sometimes perhaps the sisters might find this a little bit awkward, um, or sometimes they feel, you know, like, okay, what is this? But I want to mention, before I translate this, that in Jannah, every person would have what fits his or her nature. So a woman would have whatever they desire, a man would have whatever they desire. And we just leave it at that, okay? Just make it to Jannah, and then in Jannah you would have whatever you want. What is the hadith? And sometimes even translating some of it, we might not understand, because the concept of it doesn't really exist. That every person would have his eternal spouses of the Hurul Ain. Now the next part is difficult to translate. I mean, it's easy to translate, but we will not understand the concept. It's basically talking about their beauty. That you could see uh, that the bone marrow could be seen from behind the flesh and skin. Now, now this is not talking about them having some type of uh, disease or something that it is talking about their beauty. Okay, that's the point of the hadith. Okay, la um, Then the Prophet he said they will never get sick. يبولون, you will never have to use the restroom. You will never urinate. يتغوتون, you will never have to defecate. يتفلون, you will not spit. يمتخطون, you will not have to clean your noses. In another hadith, the Sahaba asked, so what would happen to the food? Because you can eat and eat as much as you want. And you would eat not to satisfy your hunger or quench your thirst. It is just for pure enjoyment. You can eat as much as you want. And sometimes speaking to the kids, I tell them, okay, think of what you like. 
Do you like an ice cream cone? Well, you can have a huge ice cream cone. You can even put your hands around and you can eat that whole ice cream cone and you wouldn't need to go to the restroom. So what would happen? The Prophet Sallallahu said, Jisha'un wa rash'un ka al misk yulhamoon al-tasbih wa al-tahmeed kama tulhamoon al-nafasa. The food will be digested through slightly burping and then sweating. But, once again, not like the sweat of this world. It will give off a beautiful fragrance like musk and this is how the food is digested. Aniyatuhumu al-dhahabu wal-fidda the utensils will be made of gold and silver. And their combs will be made of gold as well. And their incense sticks will be made of aloe, which is a type of fragrance. Uh, and their sweat would smell like musk, which is a beautiful fragrance. Upon the image of one person or the height of one person upon the height or the image of Adam was 60 cubits in height so you would enter Jannah you would have the height of Adam you would enter it okay, and you would be 33 years of age you, your children, grandchildren your parents, grandparents everyone will be 33 years of age because this is the peak, the height of a person's strength those of you who are maybe into sports and things like that, we know these professional athletes, after this, this is when it starts going downwards, okay? Not to sound gloomy and things like that, but inshallah, alhamdulillah, even when you're 40 or 50, you're still young in a certain sense. But this is the peak of our strength. When you enter Jannah, the Prophet said, Jurudun murdun kahla. The people of Jannah, they will not have, so two words are used. Jurdun means they will not have any facial hair, okay? And murdun means they will not have any hair on the rest of their body, right? Of course, you will have hair on your head, but like you will not have any hairy backs in Jannah. But for the men, they will not have facial hair. And perhaps people need to have and apply the sunnah in this world, just like when it comes to wine, there's a certain type of wine in Jannah. But those who are involved in that sin, then they will be deprived of it in the next life even if eventually they are admitted into paradise, if they do not repent, of course. So anyway, جُرُدٌ مُرْدٌ كَحْرَى وَهُمْ أَبْنَاءُ ثَلَاثٌ وَثَلَاثِينَ سَنَةٌ So the, the, these are the people of Jannah. And again, there's so much more that can be said, but I just wanted to conclude with a few things. Right? Jannah is a reality. It's a physical location. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created it. It exists as we speak now but it is expensive it is easy but it is expensive know that the merchandise of Allah it is expensive you have to work for it so what do we need to do in order to enter Jannah well, just few points to remember the first thing is just be a good decent human being in terms of your akhlaq be good to your friends your family members your relatives your neighbors everything Everyone. 90% of Islam is about mu'amalat, being good to others. Then of course, the, then there is the ibadat aspect of it. When it comes to rituals, make sure we're fulfilling, you know, adhering to the pillars of Islam. We're fasting Ramadan. We have performed our hajj. We're giving our zakat. And we'll be speaking about this, by the way. After salah, 
the pillars of Islam, which are also the two gates of paradise as well. So you do these basics. Now, after doing all of this, let me give you some advice. Let us try to perfect at least one thing, right? Maybe with salah, we're only doing the bare minimum. But Allah might have blessed us with wealth. So we should go beyond the 2.5%. Because as I mentioned earlier, if you perfect your sadaqah, you'll be called from babu sadaqah. Or maybe you're a person whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not blessed with wealth. Well, you can surpass others through fasting, right? If you fast, not just only in Ramadan, right? Outside of Ramadan as well. And I know in our community, there are actually elderly people and I actually feel shy saying this because they're able to do what I'm not able to do. Almost every week, they're able to fast Mondays and Thursdays or Thursdays for sure. And they've been doing it for many, many years. And there are some people you'd find continuously they've been fasting. And this is a very strong sunnah that in many cultures it is completely forgotten and ignored. If we cannot reach that level, at least start with the three fasts every month. And you know, I, this is one thing I wanted to do for this year. I've always been thinking and then I always forget. Is to just send reminders to people about fasting three days of every month. Even if one month you're not able to do it, at least it's a form of sadqa You never know, you might say something, it might affect an entire family an entire community. I remember once someone had texted me privately because I sometimes send messages and I have no idea. I'm just hoping maybe one person in the entire group chat might read it, it might benefit him. And he said, oh, because of those messages you sent, I actually had my entire, you know, Darul Uloom, all of the students to start fasting. I don't know which days or three days a month or something like this, right? Um, another person, he told me, whatever notes you post, you don't know, but he was an imam in another masjid. He's like, I steal all of your notes and I give the lecture over here. So it's always very, very beneficial. My point of saying this, what am I conveying? When you convey to others, it helps you become a better person. And you never know who in the audience might act upon it. And also, at that point, you may not see. It may actually have an effect on other people later on. So anyway, that is the point to keep in mind that we need to perfect at least one act of worship, whether it is salah, whether it is siyam, whether you know it is reading Quran, whatever it is, try to perfect one thing, because not all of us can excel in every single good deed. We do the bare minimum when it comes to the faraid, when it comes to the nafal, the extra things, try to pick one thing and then excel in that. Uh, and after the salah, inshallah, we're going to be speaking about fasting and also about charity, about zakat, um, I would just mention a few points, just some targhibi points and about the importance of zakat. I want to stress on that after the salah, the importance of zakat. And then I'll go over some questions and also of course Mufti Atif is going to speak about fasting as well. And then we'll open the floor for Q&A. Anyone has any questions, they can ask. And if you feel that you don't have any questions, then I have some questions that people usually ask me. So I know maybe a question might not come to your mind right away. But I have a list of 40 questions that usually people ask me. So I'll try to go over those questions and cover as much as I can, inshallah, before I share. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Inshallah, before we get started, the format will be as follows. I'm going to just speak briefly about the importance of zakat and go over some questions. I will not cover all 40 because I do want to open the floor for Q&A. 
if anyone has any questions, they can ask. If there are no questions, then we'll just proceed with the, with the questions that I have here. So we'll try to complete as many as we can before Isha Salah. Um, I think we still have some few brothers outside. Maybe, inshallah, if they can come inside. الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله أما بعد فقد قال الله تعالى في القرآن المجيد بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم يا أيها الذين آمنوا إن كثير من الأحبار والرهبان لأكلون موال الناس بالباطل وسدون عن سبيل الله والذين يكنزون الذهب والفضة ولا ينفقون في سبيل الله فبشرهم بعذاب أليم وقال عليه الصلاة والسلام بني الإسلام على خمس أو كما قال عليه الصلاة والسلام إن شاء الله Before I get started with the questions about zakat, I don't want to speak about the importance of zakat. Some of these points may seem very basic, but in reality, they're actually very, very profound. The first thing I wanted to mention about zakat is that zakat, like fasting, are the pillars of Islam. I know we have heard this from childhood. It seems like a very simple analogy in reality, it's actually a very profound analogy. Islam is being compared to a beautiful structure, a beautiful building. Now, a building doesn't just only have a foundation and pillars. It has more than that. It has walls. It has a roof. It may have beautiful chandeliers, a nice carpet or towels, and so on and so forth. Decoration inside of the structure. Likewise is the case with Islam. Islam is not only of these five rituals. It's more than this. However, the key point we need to know is you need to have a strong foundation. If you don't have a strong foundation, if the pillars are weak, the entire building may come crashing down at any time. The entire structure might collapse at any time. And so zakat is one of those beautiful, strong, solid pillars of Islam that is holding up this beautiful structure. The second point about zakat, about charity, is that... My beard is coming the way. The second point about zakat is that it is one of the main gates of Jannah. And for those of you who were here before Maghrib, I gave not the entire tour of Jannah, but I gave some description of paradise. And I mentioned that those who excel in charity, they will be called from the gate of Sadaqah. The other point that really emphasizes the importance of zakat is if you read the Quran, almost always zakat is paired with salah. وَأَقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ وَآتُ الزَّكَاةِ In dozens of verses in the Quran, the both of them have been paired together. Compare this to Hajj or Siyam. Hajj is mentioned two or three times. The fasting of Ramadan is only mentioned once. Now this is not to trivialize fasting. Because if I were to give a lecture on fasting, I would be mentioning the unique points about fasting. But since I'm focusing on zakat, I wanted to just illustrate that point. Almost always when Iqamat al-Salah is mentioned, Ita'i al-Zakah is mentioned 
immediately afterwards. The other point that shows the importance of zakat is that in the Khilafat of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, when those who refused to give their zakat, what did Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, what did he do? He declared war against those people. Right? It's like, imagine in any legal system, even nowadays, if the people refuse to give their taxes, right? <laughs> there will be consequences for that. In fact, in the prison system, many of the people, they say worse than murder is the crime of tax evasion. So of course, in Islam, we don't have tax. We have the concept of, uh, of zakat and sadaqah. So of course, Abu Bakr being the khalifa, he did what was in his power. Even people like Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, he softened up at this moment. He said, Ya Abu, O Khalifa al-Mu'mineen, at least they're praying salah, and we have big issues to worry about. At least they're praying salah. And this is where Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, and you could see why he has an edge over Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. And he addressed him, and only Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu can address Umar al-Khattab radiallahu anhu. He said, oh, the one who was seen to be very brave in the days of Jahiliyyah has now become a coward in the days of Islam. If anyone refuses to even give one rope, which is something very insignificant, that they were given in the time of the Prophet and they refuse to give now, I would wage war against them. Anyone who makes a distinction between Salah and Zakat. So anyway, all of these points should make it clear to us why Zakat is important. The fact that it is in the Quran, Allah has commanded us, that is enough of a reason. If you want to know a social reason, well, if everyone gave their zakat, their 2.5%, poverty will be eliminated from the entire world. They say that the top 85 billionaires in the world, they have enough wealth to eradicate poverty from the entire world, right? And forget about the billionaires. Even if the top 1%, if they gave their zakat, no one would starve to death. And do you know who falls in the top 1%? This might surprise many of you, because when you think of the top 1%, because we're living here in the West, in the US, we're thinking about the millionaires and the billionaires. Actually, if all of us, we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we fall in the top 1%. You know what gets you into the top 1%? If you make anywhere between 40 to 50,000 US dollars, you are in the top 1%. Do you know the average person in the world only makes $2.50? Right? And this is not an exaggeration. Many of you might have family members back home. You know, the country that I'm from, the currency that is used is rupee, right? A person is getting 10,000 rupees a month. That might seem like a large amount, if you convert it into dollars, it's like 80, 90 dollars a month, right? And this is like good salary. All of the things that we complain of, people in other parts of the world could only dream of these things. Do you know having a car is a luxury? Having an AC in the house is a luxury. Having a fridge in the house is a luxury. Having a one room apartment, apartment, not a house, this is a luxury. Only the top 1% in other parts of the world have access to all of these things. Why am I mentioning this? Because it is related to the topic of zakat. Because sometimes in some issues, people are so meticulous and very pedantic, trying to find ways to find an opinion here and there where they can avoid giving zakat. It should be the opposite, 
right? And this is what I try to endorse, that every person, especially if you're living in the West, there is no reason for you not to give zakat, unless you have money that is below uh, nisab, which is actually very rare, okay? Um, and of course, those who do deserve, I'm sure, in every community, there are certain individuals, but you have to make sure that you give it to the right recipients of zakat. So let us quickly go over some of these questions. Um, I have rephrased them just for the sake of brevity and simplicity. I'll go over maybe 10 questions and then I'll stop, open the floor for Q&A. If there are questions, I'll take the questions from the audience. If not, I'll just continue with my list. The first question, what is the definition of nisab? How much money do you have to have in order to give zakat? So remember, in Islam, only the wealthy give zakat. The poor are the recipients of zakat. So what is considered wealthy? It's a relative term. Well, in Islam, you have something very specific. If you reach the nisab, which is the minimum threshold, you own this amount of wealth, from a shari'i point of view, you're considered wealthy. Now you have to give zakat. Now, of course, in the old days, it was always based on gold or silver. Nowadays, we have dollar, so we would convert it. So the second question, what is the nisab of gold? The nisab of gold, now I'm not going to use the measurements that was used in the past. Let's convert it to our modern measurements. It is basically 88 grams of gold. If you only have gold, okay, and it is 88 grams or more, then you need to give 2.5% of that. What is the value of that when it comes to dollars? Nowadays, you can easily Google this, right? I don't want to give you an exact number for the simple reason that the price and the value of it, it fluctuates. So you just put what is the price of one gram of gold right, and multiply that by 88. To give you an approximation, you could say it is around 5,000, a little bit more than 5,000. But once again, don't hold me to this number because it fluctuates every year, uh, or every day actually. What is the nisab of silver? So if you only have silver, the nisab is 612 grams. Now in the time of the Prophet the nisab of gold and silver, the value of it was similar. But over time, we know that silver has depreciated and there is this discrepancy between gold and silver. So if you only had silver, it's easy. If you only have gold, it's easy, right? You just go with the nisab of gold and silver. But when you convert it into dollars, the nisab of silver would actually be approximately $500. So gold is 5,000 some dollars and nisab of silver is 500 something. So now if you have cash, which nisab do you go with, gold or silver? Now I will mention a rule of fiqh, and this we can apply in so many things. And that is when it comes to zakat, you always want to calculate it in a manner that is most beneficial to the poor people. So let me ask you, that in America, it is said the average person has maybe two, three thousand dollars in their savings, and most of the people. And mashallah, look at the lifestyle that we are living. From this angle, what will be more beneficial if we use the gold nisab or the silver nisab? What would help the poor people, the starving people, the one billion people who don't have access to clean water, a billion people who don't have access to food three times a day? Well, for us, mashallah, when we open the fridge, 
We don't know whether to begin from the right side or the left side. So anyway, our ulama have mentioned, we go with the silver nisab. I'm mentioning this because you would find the other opinion as well, but it much, makes much more sense. You go with the silver nisab. Now you might be saying $500, that's such a large, small amount. But realize the zakat is also very insignificant. It goes by percentage. Do you know how much you would have to give if you have $500? $12.50. $12.50. So remember, it is always about percentage. Okay? The rich person, if he has 100 million, then he needs to give 2.5 million in zakat. And if you have 1,000, you will need to give $25 right, in zakat. Now, don't let shaitan trick you and saying that, wow, if I have 100 million, I have to give two and a half million in zakat. Look at it this way. Flip it around. Out of a hundred million, Allah has allowed you to enjoy 97 and a half million for yourself, on yourself, on your family. You can spend it. Only two and a half you give for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, is there zakat on jewelry? Okay. So should you give zakat on this? This is a very common question. It's also a very controversial one as well. Realize that there are different uh, opinions. These are all valid opinions. But the opinion uh, that we go with in the Shafi'i Madhab, in the Shafi'i school of thought, that they say there's no zakat on jewelry. But the vast majority of the scholars, the rest, and we go with this position, and this is what we promote, that uh, they sh there is zakat on jewelry. Uh, if a woman has gold or silver, even in jewelry, she should give zakat on that as well. What if the jewelry is for personal use? Yes, there is zakat on that as well. The general rule is anything that is for personal use, there is no zakat. So the clothes you're wearing, there is no zakat on that. The house you live in, there is no zakat. The car that you drive, there is no zakat. The wash that you're wearing, anything for personal use, there is no zakat. Other than that, you would have to give zakat. Now this is the general rule, but when it comes to gold and silver, it is an exception to this rule. So jewelry, even if it is for personal use, this is the exception to the rule. Anything else, the furniture in the house, there is no zakat on that. Is there zakat on precious stones, gemstones, like diamonds, rubies, and things like this? There is no zakat on, uh, on those, okay? Only gold and silver. No, no, there is zakat. Gold is the only exception, meaning if it's for personal use, even if you're using it, there's still zakat on that. Okay? The rule, the general rule is anything you're using, anything you're wearing, there's no zakat on that. But according to the opinion of the majority of the ulama, that gold and silver is an exception. By jewelry, I mean gold and silver that is jewelry. If it's diamonds, rubies, and other precious gemstones, there's no zakat on that. Sorry? Yeah, yes, good. So it has to reach the nisab. If someone has uh, gold and it is below the nisab, there is no zakat on that. Um, is there zakat on money saved for hajj? I will just lump all of these questions together. Is there zakat on money saved for hajj? Number 11. Is there zakat on money saved for my child's college tuition? Number 12. Is there zakat on money saved for my child's wedding? And you can think of so many other examples that are of similar type. Yes, there is zakat on that. Any money that you have, you're going to have something planned for it in the future. But that doesn't exclude you from zakat because then no one would be giving zakat. Okay? 
um, is there zakat and money lent to others? So when you lend someone money, who gives the zakat? The lender or the borrower? It's the lender who gives zakat, because it is your money. It is just in his pocket temporarily. At the end, it belongs to you. You are the owner. Is there zakat on money lent to others on interest? Okay, I'm mentioning these points because it leads to the other questions which are related to it. So this is just a build up to that. Is there zakat on money lent to others on interest? Of course, interest is haram. Okay, there's no question about that. That's haram. But if you're doing one haram, let not that lead you to commit another haram. So the money you receive on interest, there's no zakat on the interest because you're not supposed to be taking interest in the first place. And if you didn't know, you take that interest and you give it away without even the intention of sadaqah. You give it away because you're not, you're not supposed to benefit from it. It's haram to be involved in interest. What about the principal amount that you lent? Right? Even though you gave it on interest, but you still have to give zakat on that, the principal amount which belongs to you. Now I know it sounds simple, but I put this question here to build up to the next few questions. Is there zakat on bonds, on CDs, right? Is there zakat on these things? Basically, is there zakat on money you put in the bank, right? And it's, it's in a savings account, and you're accruing interest. You're getting interest. So once again, it's haram to be involved in that. Any type of transaction where you're getting interest and you're benefiting from the loan you gave, this is haram, it's clearly riba. But it's not going to exclude you from the zakat. So if you put $20,000 in the bank account, some people think, well, it's haram money, I'm committing one haram, so okay, there might not be zakat on it. You still have to give zakat on the principal amount, the $20,000. Is there zakat on the wholesale price? Is there zakat on business commodities? The answer is yes. So anything that is for sale, if you're a businessman, it doesn't matter what is it that you're selling. You would give zakat on your commodities, on your inventory. It could be anything. You could be selling chairs, tables, pencils, anything. When the due date arrives, you just calculate what is the value of it, and you give zakat on that. Question number 20, is there zakat on the wholesale price or the retail price? So if you're selling it at a retail price, you give zakat according to that. If you're selling it at a wholesale price, then you give zakat according to that, okay? Um, is there zakat and my personal belongings? Okay, the next few questions, I will lump them together. Is there zakat and my personal belongings? Number 22, is there zakat and my house furniture? Is there zakat and my house? Is there zakat and my car? The answer to all of these is no. Anything for personal use, there is no zakat, except for jewelry, a jewelry that is made of gold and silver, you would have to give zakat on that. Is there zakat on my rental property? The answer is yes, but you give zakat not on the market price of the house, but the rent that you receive. So suppose you have a house or an apartment that is worth 100,000, right? I'm just giving you an example. I don't know what the house market is, and I don't know what the houses go for, but just say that an apartment is worth 100,000. And every month you're receiving $1,000 in rent. So at the end of the year, you're going to have $12,000. So what do you give zakat on? On $12,000 or $100,000? You give zakat on $12,000. But only if all of that was saved and nothing of it was used. So at the end of the year, on your due date, if you had all of the $12,000, you give zakat on that. 
if you use the, some amount, suppose you use $6,000 for whatever, it could be anything. And at the end of the year, you only had half of it remaining. So you only give zakat on the remaining amount. If nothing was remaining, then there's no zakat. Another interesting point, zakat is different than taxes in two ways. Okay, in one way, zakat is more advantageous. In another way, tax, if you look at it from another angle. How? Whatever salary you're making, you give zakat on it. Not zakat. You, when you give taxes, once, that's it. You've given your taxes. You don't give taxes the next year. But the flip side to it is, suppose you're getting $50,000 a year, right? At the end of the year, if you have nothing remaining, you still have to give your taxes. Right? With zakat, it's the exact opposite. If you're making $50,000, at the end of the year, you have to see how much of it is remaining. If nothing is remaining, at the end of the year you're broke, then there's nothing upon you. There's no zakat on you. However, if you have $50,000 in your savings, you gave zakat on it the first year, and mashallah, all of it is saved, right? In your bank account, in a checking account. Right? It's saved there. Then the next year, you got another 50000 Now you add that. So the following year, you have to give zakat on 100,000. The previous 50, many people don't know this. And I came to know this recently that many people think if I'm giving zakat, it's like taxes, I don't have to give zakat on it again. It's basically whatever remaining amount you have on the due date. Okay? So you, uh, you'll give zakat on that. Um, is there zakat on the rent or the value of the house? So I've answered this question. It's on the rent. Number 27, is there zakat on the buildings, machinery, and vehicles of my business? No, it's only the inventory. Okay, whatever you're selling. The building, the machinery, and all of that, there's no zakat. Number 28, do I pay zakat if I have a debt? Okay, so if I owe someone money, right? So Ramadan is coming. Let me give you a realistic example. Ramadan 15 is my due date, for example, right? And right now, I have $10,000 with me, for example, okay? And on Ramadan 15, I have to give my zakat. However, I have to give someone, I owe him $12,000, but it will be after Ramadan, in Shawwal. So do I give zakat or not? In this case, since it's a short-term loan, I have to give him immediately after Ramadan. This means all of this money doesn't really belong to me. So in this case, there is no zakat upon me. Because I have to give him $12,000. However, if I owe him only $2,000, right, then I only deduct $2,000. Okay, this is one scenario. Another scenario is if it's a long-term loan, right? For example, someone has bought a house on mortgage, right? Um, I know we are not supposed to be involved in interest, that's, but that's a different issue. We talked about that. Now he has a 15 year loan or 30 year loan does he deduct that entire amount no because he might be driving the best car he's living mashallah, in a mansion and he says well i have twenty thousand dollars but i owe the bank you know whatever three hundred thousand dollars so i'm in debt no in this case you do not deduct the entire amount our scholars have mentioned you only deduct the payment of that month so if this month i have to pay whatever two thousand dollars or three thousand dollars only that amount I deduct, and on the rest, I would have to give zakat. Is that clear? So if, mashallah, if I have a house, right, and say the person, he bought it on interest from the bank, 
Now he has to pay the bank over a span of 15 years or 30 years. He has to pay them 300,000 or 400,000. He owes them that amount. But right now when Ramadan comes, he has $40,000 with him. So what do you do? In this case, you don't apply that rule I mentioned earlier. You don't deduct the entire amount. Why? Because there's something called maqasid al-shari'ah, looking at the bigger goals of the sharia. What is the bigger goal? The rich should be helping the poor. And in this case, if we apply that rule, then basically the richest people are the ones who become the recipients of zakat. So in this case, um, you will not deduct the entire amount. Um, is there zakat on mahar I haven't received yet? So no. If a woman has been promised mahar, right, the husband said, mashallah, I'm going to give you whatever, a certain amount. Okay? I don't want to even mention an amount because I don't want you to think that that is the amount that you should be giving. A certain amount, and they mention a very high amount. And the woman has not received it yet. Ten years has passed by, there's no zakat upon her. But if the husband has the money, of course the husband would have to be giving zakat because it is considered his wealth. Is there zakat on inheritance I haven't received yet? There's no zakat. If I haven't received it yet, there's no zakat. Is there zakat on land and real estate bought for the purpose of zakat? The answer is yes. So this will be considered like a commodity. You're doing business. So just like a businessman, he has to give zakat on his inventory. Likewise, if a person has bought land, he has bought a house with the intention of selling it, right? That is his primary intention. Then he would give zakat on the value of the land or the house. Can I pay zakat in advance? The answer is yes. Unlike the other pillars of Islam, you can do them before their time. You can pray, for example, Dhuhr Salah before the time of Dhuhr. You can fast Ramadan before the month of Ramadan. You can perform Hajj before the season of Hajj. Zakat is different. If you want, you can give it before, right? And some people like to give, for example, weekly or monthly, that's fine. But you have to make sure the calculation is correct. So if I know that, okay, in Ramadan 2023, I'm going to have $10,000 or a certain amount, say, $100,000 and I calculate based on that I'm going to have $2,500 in zakat and I start giving it weekly or monthly that's fine now when my due date arrives let's see how much money I have if I have 100,000 the math is perfect if I had more than 100,000 if I had 200,000 then I have to give another extra two and a half thousand and if at the end of the year instead of 100,000 I only ended up with 50,000 so that means, alhamdulillah, you give extra, and inshallah, that will be part of, in your scale of good deeds. Of course, you can go to the people and take it back from them. Uh, this was just something extra you gave, and you'll be rewarded for that. But yes, you can give zakat in advance. Can I pay zakat to my siblings? The answer is yes, if they are recipients of zakat. Which means that they have money below nisab. And which nisab are we going by? The nisab of silver. Again, you would hear the other opinion as well, that is very common. Many organizations and many people go with that. But again, looking at the broader picture, those who don't have food to eat, right? You have children, babies that are dying in the laps of their mothers. Of course, they deserve our attention, right? So it is the food of the poor people. We don't want to deprive them. And so we want to obligate zakat on, many, on as many rich people as possible, right? So that the poor can be helped. Can zakat be given to my siblings, brothers and sisters? Yes. Can I give zakat to my aunts and uncles? Yes. 
as long as they are recipients of zakat, right? If they have money that reaches nisab, then you cannot give them. Um, what about, can you give zakat to parents? No. Can you give zakat to your wife? No. Because you're responsible for them anyways. So not zakat, you help them through your sadaqah and your regular charity. Um, do I pay zakat on wealth belonging to my children? Okay. Now this is a little bit of a controversial issue. And I'm mentioning this so that you are tolerant of this difference of opinion. Within the madhahib, within the different schools of thought, which has been codified, you would find some of these differences of opinion. And at the end of the day, you just have to follow one of the two opinions. So, of course, we go with the fiqh of Abdullah bin Mas'ud, the scholars of Kufa, Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, his position was, and many of the scholars of Kufa, that children are not obligated. But in the Shafi'i fiqh, Imam Shafi'i, rahimahullah, that if children have wealth, that the wali, the guardian, must give zakat on their behalf because it's the right of the wealth that it must be cleansed and purified. So that makes perfect sense. It's watertight logic. But look at it from the other perspective. In the Hanafi school of thought, the children are not obligated with this obligation like the rest of the obligation. So when Allah says, the children are not addressed with this. When Allah says, the children are not addressed with this. When Allah says, the children. So from their perspective, that because it's the same commandment, and Allah is commanding the adults who are saying, children are exempted, so zakat should be no exception. Of course, Imam Shafi, they would understand it from a different perspective, that the people who are being addressed are the wali of the children. And again, at the end of the day, both of these are valid opinions. Again, sticking to the usul, you always have to speak, stick to your principles. You cannot go back and forth and try to find leeway. In this case, those who follow the Shafi'i school of thought realize that the guardian would have to give zakat on behalf of their uh, children. But those who follow the Hanafi school of thought, if you have children and they have some gold or someone has given them cash, someone has given them some gifts, technically there is no zakat. And we also have to mention this because from another angle, the parents have to be very careful with the money of the children, right? So that's also another point to look at. Even though the ayah is about orphans, but we have to be very careful when it comes to, you know, you know, basically uh, using the wealth of the children. <laughs> yes, you could say it like that. Yeah, another way of putting it. Yes. But of course, we should still encourage our children, like when we bring them to the masjid, we take them anywhere. I've seen this habit. I've seen many parents, they sometimes give their children some money, and they'll say, okay, give some of it, put it in the donation box. This is a good habit, you know. These kind of things we should teach them from uh, a young age, inshallah. Um, all right, inshallah, I'll stop here now. Open the floor for Q&A. Anyone have any questions? If, if anybody has a question. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. First, uh, we will appreciate your coming here to educate us on zakat. Uh, I have two questions. The first one, I know Islamically zakat should be given. First, we have to start by family members. Um, now, where is Islamically sufficient enough to know who needs zakat? Meaning, 
Is it enough for me to go to my brother or sister and say, hey brother, do you accept zakat? Uh, because recently I have heard that you really sometimes you have to investigate, meaning you don't take their words for it, like it, they might say yes, but no, they said no, you have to investigate, meaning, you know, uh, are you sure, show me how much money you make, and so are we allowed to do that? What is Islamically okay to, to determine who really is needed of that zakat? So in this case, I mean, you would have to do your due diligence, right? You, you, it's your judge, judgmental call. At the end of the day, there's no specific things that you need to do all of these things to know whether you just basically use your judgment, but to the best of your ability. You do your due diligence, and always remember that if you give them your zakat and they're not deserving of it, then your zakat does not count. So from that angle, you have to do everything that is possible. And if you did everything, now what do you have to do? It varies from person to person, from family to family. Um, you don't have to, if they don't feel bad by you asking them that, you can ask them that question. If you think they'll feel offended, maybe through some other means you can try to ask to see how much money they have, what is in their possession. And, uh, but yes, you have to do your due diligence. But can I rephrase this question? So, Nisab to give zakat is 88 grams of gold to give. Is there a Nisab or pressure to receive zakat? Like how poor do they have to be? Okay, so yeah, the same thing that um, you have to be below the silver Nisab. The, the silver yeah, Nisab. You're not sure. So there is again is some uh, controversy in this too. Some have said that you give zakat, so if you're between silver and gold, this is also a contemporary uh, fatwa that has been given by some, that you give zakat, okay, because you have reached the silver nisab, but because you're below the gold nisab, right, you can also receive it. But again, we don't endorse that because it confuses things. The nisab we go by is the silver nisab, okay, the silver nisab. So if someone has $500 or more, then you should not give him uh, zakat, you should find someone, and there are a lot of people who have below that. N not here, not here. Tax uh, exempt and buy them the date and all that in America. I'm saying today, everybody has $500 yeah. from the government. I mean, in America. Yeah. And that's why most of the people, to be honest, most of the people that come, they don't even realize, mashallah, they're driving a car better than mine. They have a, a like, I don't know, the latest uh, phone, iPhone, and they're like, well, we're coming for zakat. And in my mind, I'm like, this is, some of them is from, you know, they're living a lifestyle that's perhaps even better than many of us. So that's just one, and I, I know this from experience. So uh, it's most of the people, I won't say all of them, but many people. So you have to do your due diligence. Uh, I have a second question. The, um, most of us who work in corporations, they, we, we are offered the 401k plans, and sometimes we do buy some stocks at a certain price, and, and then after years, they multiply and they go big. So how can someone determine the amount of zakat on those? So there's also a law, this is one of those contemporary issues where the scholars they have been discussing it, just like the issue of Bitcoin, right? That all of the scholars are trying to figure this out. The simple answer to this is that, is there zakat on it or not? Again, you hear different things. It's a contemporary issue. They're not going to find a specific hadith regarding this. But pretty much um, many of them, uh, or the ulama whose fatwa we take, that they should give zakat on 401k. But by the way, you know, mashallah, Mufti Atif, he is much more experienced than me, and uh, this is his field. So if he wants to go into more details, I don't want to say anything <laughs> contradictory. Uh, 
to what he may have said. But yes, this is the position. This is the fatwa. Uh, one of the fatwas that zakat is given on 401k. It should be given on that because technically it is your wealth. Because I, I have I have heard that you, you you give zakat on it when you take it out. So when you yeah, so you when don't you have out. to give it right away. You can give it when you receive it, but you would have to give it on all the previous years. So just okay. like, for example, like if I give someone a loan of ten thousand dollars, now. If I don't have the money with me, I don't have to give zakat right away every year. If he gives me back my money after 10 years, okay. I will give zakat after 10 years, but on all of the previous years. Okay. So it's easier that every year I just calculate, because I know hopefully, inshallah, I'll get the money back. Now there is one scenario when if the person takes your money, which is actually what usually happens, he takes your $10,000, you give him a loan, he says, Assalamu alaikum, Jazakallah khair, and then you never see him again. Now if there's no hope of recovery, you, you think he's not going to give you back. And then 10 years pass by. You gave it to him for one or two years. 10 years pass by. And then he realizes, okay, you know what? He had realizes his mistake. And he comes back and he gives you the $10,000. In that case, there will be no zakat on all of the previous years. But if you know that you will get it back, right? And he's a reliable person. It is technically your wealth. And you haven't lost it. You would give zakat on that. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum. When giving zakat, do you have to mention it uh, to somebody who uh, deserves it as a zakat no, no, or no. just? Uh, no, no, you can even present it like even as a gift or something. Exactly. However, the main thing is you have to make sure they are actual recipients of zakat, that they're eligible, that they're actually poor, that they have money below his head. But you don't have to actually tell him right on a thing that this is zakat money. But I, I mean, in some cases, I could understand when people do it because they want to make sure that the person understands. So it's up to you, it's your call. You can tell him that it is zakat, and if you want to avoid that, as long as you know that he is an actual recipient of zakat, then... Uh, no, because uh, the reason I'm asking, because some, some people, they may be embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah in that, know, that, Just that like they feel like, uh, you know, uh, yeah. even though they deserve the, the zakat, but uh, yeah. they feel like embarrassed receiving yeah, yeah. it. So, so you, don't, you don't have to mention to him so As zakat. a gift, you know, it, it sounds a lot better for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, I have one question. Like, we normally give zakah in Ramadan so we can get uh, maximum ajar, right? Yeah. But if I take out the zakah money in Ramadan, but when giving out, I spread it across the months and give, so do we still get the reward as if we are giving full zakat in Ramadan or is it different? So there's two things to keep in mind. Technically speaking, the zakat even though we're talking about it because everyone gives their zakat in Ramadan, technically speaking, there's no linkage between zakat and Ramadan. Rather, you give zakat when your due date arrives. So the way it works is the first time you became sahib in Islam, when you reached the minimum threshold and you became wealthy from a shari point of view, it could have been any time of the year. Maybe it was Muharram 15th. So that becomes your due date. So every Muharram 15th, you will give zakat. Now what happens, because most of the people don't remember the first time they became sahib in Islam, so they just choose a date in Ramadan, which is fine. I mean, if you don't remember the date, what can you do now? You still have to give zakat. And it's easier to remember. So in that case, if you give it in Ramadan, and you also make this added intention, I want to get more reward because it's Ramadan, and you can combine between intentions, right? Like a farad with an other nafal intention, right? Like you come to the masjid and you make three, four intentions, right? You can do that. 
you can combine between intention, then that's fine. In this case, once again, there is no hadith regarding the specific scenario, but there is a generic hadith that you can always use, the hadith in Bukhari, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I am is my servant thinks of me, right? So anytime you do something, you expect the maximum reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and it is hoped that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you the maximum reward. So you definitely there's no harm in making the intention. You make the intention and inshallah you, you get the reward. But it is something also to keep in mind that the poor people are not only in Ramadan, right? You have poor people outside of Ramadan as well. Yeah, I think that's the idea, right? Yeah. Uh, like if I give in Ramadan, I have to give in bulk just in that month. Uh -huh. So if I just take it out in Ramadan, calculate and take it out and keep it aside. Uh -huh. But delivery, I give every month. Yeah. So do we... I mean, can so I it is expected you, may, you, you make the get intention the to Ramadan. get the maximum reward. Yeah. And that's a good thing to do, that you calculate everything in Ramadan and then you give it monthly. Uh, that's it's oh. perfectly fine and it's good to do. Okay. So this is again one of the most uh, controversial uh, topic as well. And usually I'm very, very lenient and very, very tolerant in different opinions. But this is one of those where um, we take the more stricter approach, right? The more the approach of the classical ulama who say that tamlik is very important, that you give it to a person, a poor person, and he has to become an owner. Giving to these noble causes are very good, but it should be supported through sadaqah. A masjid is a noble project, uh, an orphanage, a hospital, all of this. These are noble projects. And remember, we shouldn't just only limit our charity only through, to zakat. It should be more than this, right? We can give extra from our charity, sadaqah. But realize what is more important, if you were to think about it logically. Schools are very important. I mean, we are over here, you know, promoting, you know, al-hira. You know, this is a very important and a noble cause. But feeding poor people, right, is even more important, especially poor people. So in that case, you would have to give to poor people. By the way, when it comes to schools, you could pay to the students who cannot afford, for example, tuition. Right? You can give money to a poor person as long as you make him an owner. Once you make him an owner, they can do anything with the money. If they want to pay their tuition, they want to buy food, that's up to them. But you have to make them the owner. Right? So for example, some schools or organizations, they may take the zakat money, but as wakil, as representative on behalf of the poor people. In that case, that's fine as long as the poor person knows that this is money is being collected on his or her behalf. Okay? But basically, you have to give it to a poor person, he has to become an owner, right? Whether you put it into his pocket or you give it to another person, as long as he knows that this is his money and he has become the owner. Uh, no, ch children, if they are... I mean, the thing is the parents, if they are rich, if the parents are rich, then no, you cannot give zakat to uh, the children of rich people. This, the same thing because they will be, because they have to spend money on the children, right? So basically whatever you give to them would be, actually in this point I would have to see because generally, I mean, I can uh, check with Mufti Atif, but usually, if the father was rich, for sure, that is written in the books that if the father is rich and the children, if he's an infant and you're giving it to the infant, of course, it's going back to the father because he has to spend on them. 
But if it is the woman, she, she's not technically speaking financially in charge of uh, taking uh, take of their children. In that case, I would have to check this. I would have to see this. Okay, other if you want to comment on that, if, for example, the mother, if she is rich, not the father. Okay, whoever is responsible, right? So, in technically, in this case, they will be yeah. So, according to the usul, yeah, because financially, she's not uh, she's not responsible for taking care of the child. Would it be considered towards zakat? No, you would have to actually make him the owner. So he had to give you, right? And then you would have to make him the owner, give it back to him. Yeah. It will not be counted towards uh, zakat, right? Uh, but I can also check with Mufti Atif, right? That if someone has taken a loan from you, and then at the end, you know, two or three years pass by, and you say, okay, just consider it as zakat. If the chance to yeah. the main thing about zakah is all about what are uh, basically what are the chances of you receiving that amount so even a lot I know there was one question about the 401k as well a lot of the things is that we don't have access to those funds so sometimes we give it to certain people and the chances of us getting it back is minimal. Or we have initially took that uh, stance where, you know, sometimes we give it to our brother or sometimes our own parents or our children. And we, we, we have uh, made this uh, intention that if they give it back, they give it back. Otherwise, you know, it's theirs. That's different. But if it's like a qard where you feel that you're going to get it back, then you would have to give the katan. No, no, that was not. Uh, I was asking. That is considered like if he's not able to pay you back, right? You gave him ten thousand dollars, and he's not able to pay you back, right? Uh, and then he's like, okay, you know what? Just consider it as a cut. Did he do that? Consider so, like, uh, yes, of course. Let yeah. me explain. Like, if someone asks you for a loan, whatever the amount is, and then on the following year, let's say the zakat time it comes, and you calculate, and that amount it passed, whatever. Uh, so can you just call him and you say, hey, you don't have to worry about giving me back the money. That's my zakat. You can keep it. As long as he's eligible, yes. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah. sometimes even like the, maybe when they ask for money, we'll know that he's maybe needy, you know, when he didn't pay in yeah, time. Yeah, uh, we just have to make sure that they're zakat eligible. Yeah, because sometimes uh, it, it might seem like they are, but it's it's a little uh, it's a little difficult to determine that okay. but if you can determine that then yes All because right. it's your money you can do whatever so yeah. just giving it in that fashion would be fine okay and i have a second question about the uh, nisab and like you say you were talking about the like if you have rent you have rent in something and you get in like every month a payment a rent and then at the end of the year you get 12 payments and then you have to pay uh, uh, to give zakat on all for 12 payment uh, I thought like money, it has to have like, uh, there is nisab and there is a, a time, a certain amount that you own, I mean, you own that money before it's due for zakat. Like so, you have to have it for one year. Yeah, like, you have to have it for one year. So basically, there's different ways of cal 
calculating the money that you have, pretty much the method that is adopted by most of the ulama, the scholars, is that the nisab has to basically stay for one year. Not that a year has to pass over every dollar that you get, because no one actually, you know, takes, uh, you know, basically no one actually uh, looks at every dollar and to see whether a, do uh, a year passed over it or not, right? So what it is is that you have to make sure that nisab remains for the entire year, and any wealth that you get throughout the year, you just add it, even if a year did not pass over it. In other words, if next month, if I have to give zakat, and I have $10,000 with me, and I had it for the whole year, and then this month, I receive another $2,000, I just simply add it, and I give zakat on this, next month, even though a year did not pass over this, uh, this $2,000. The reason for this is because if you were to say that a year has to pass over every single dollar, no one usually, people are always, you know, spending their money. You see my point? So yeah. it's just that the year has to pass over your uh, nisab, the nisab amount, which is uh, about $500. In other words, if any time during the year, if you went below the nisab or you went into the negative zero, then in that case, even when Ramadan comes, you don't give zakat. You give zakat once a year lapses after you became sahib nisab again. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I think the easy way to understand that is kind of like how we do our taxes. So whatever we had at the time, like December 31st, or whenever our tax season finishes, it's accounted for that. Similarly, when we became uh, the owner of nisab, the year started. So it's kind of like that was our January 1st. Now, throughout the year, it could be whatever. As soon as it's December 31st, it would be. That, that, that's the easy way to understand it. Just to mention his point, rephrase brother's first question. Brother Zia asks, can you make intention of like free zakat? Like, can you give it in advance? You can, right? Yes, yes. Can you make intention of post zakat money that you already gave, and after two years, you're thinking that I'm not going to get this money anyways. Can I assume or think that that was zakat? That was the question. So basically, until the point that you felt that he was going to give it back, because uh, this, this question is a little bit deeper, and uh, the, the main thing to understand is, you know, the, the, the concept of usury and interest in Islam is that you can never make money off of a loan, right? So the, the actual definition of interest is, كُلُّ قَرْضٍ جَرَّ نَفْعًا any loan that pulls any type of benefit is fahuwa riban. That is what, what is interest. So the fact that when we give somebody money and the person and you and the person says, I'll pay you back in one year or two years or five years, the reality is that the time means nothing because, because you're not you're not allowed to take any benefit. So tomorrow you can go back and say, brother, I, I, I know I gave you one year, but I need this money now. And he, by rule, he would have to pay you that money back. It was, it's just a promissory note because we're not allowed to take any benefit. If this same concept is in sale, it's different. You cannot. So if, 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 if he bought a car from you and he said, I'm going to pay you after a year, we cannot ask him before the year ends. But in, my, in actual loan, it's different. So that being said, if we understand that concept, now when we give this person $10,000 and we said, okay, pay it back after whatever, now, in this year or two or three, are we in hopes that he's going to give us? Yes. So because we're in hopes of it and we can always take, uh, take that money back and we have access to those funds, we would have to give zakat on it. And because 
after, um, right in the beginning, if we said, I'm giving it to my brother, but I know him ever since I was a kid, I don't think I'm getting this back, so you know what? This is his. If he gives it, he gives it. Otherwise, I have no faith in it. Then you don't have to give zakat. So until we don't decide that, okay, you know, I, this brother won't be able to pay me back, so I'm going to let him have it, until that point, we still have to give zakat because we, until this point, we're still in their determination that he will pay us that loan back, so we'll have to give zakat. Yeah, that we already answered. Yeah, you're allowed to do that. The, the, the follow-up question is, during those two, three years, while he was still owing you, do you have to give zakat in those two years or not? That was the question. I hope that's clear. I have a question, Sheikh. Yes. Um, if you loan someone money one year, and then a period of time passes, um, obviously due to inflation, the money is worth less. Like, let's say $5,000 today is going to be worth less than it is, uh, or more than it is in 10 years. So when they give you the money back, do they pay back the exact amount, or do they pay back that plus uh, adjustment for interest, uh, uh, for um, inflation? No, no, you don't take inflation to account. You're the same, the exact same amount, because that is the whole point of giving qardi hasana. Either if you want to make money, you be in, in partnership with another person in business, or you give the person money a sadaqah, or you give him qardi hasana, and that is the whole point behind it, that you could have used that money and put it in, invested in business, and you could have made profit out of it. So you cannot make profit out of it. It is a type of profit. That money, if you had it with you for two years, you wouldn't have gained any profit. So if you give it as a goodly loan, a qardi hasana, then only that amount can be given back to you. That's why there's so much reward for it, because you're sacrificing that profit that you could have made if you would have invested somewhere else. As, as a follow-up to his question, actually somebody answered it differently, saying, in 2000, $2,000 will bring you, let's say, one kilo of gold. In 2050, I want you to give me the amount of one kilo of gold. It could be 200,000 or it could be less, could be more. Is that okay? Is, you see what I'm saying? So yeah, instead, instead, of, instead of giving him back the same amount 20 years later, because it did happen when somebody, let, let's say, you know, $1,000 now, and then 50 years later, which is basically, you know, it's going to be worth way more. Yeah. They made this fatwa and said, okay, 20 years ago, 1,000 could get you 20 grams of gold, right? So now, give me, tw give me the amount of equivalent of 20 grams of gold. Is that okay or not? Yeah, if it's in gold, yes, it would be fine. No, no, because no, no, in the no, no it was cash. Uh, no, see, the cash, okay. the reason why, because then it, it, it actually opens up a really dangerous door. Because... Uh, we actually had a question just recently about currency. People are doing the same exact concept in currency because, you know, at, you know because of some war, because of some other issues, uh, the currency drops and it rises. So if you are basing it off of that, then obviously that is opening up the door to riba. So it becomes problematic. So yes, if, I, if you say, let's actually do this transaction in gold, so that would be fine. So because of the, the main concept in Sharia is that you cannot take benefit unless there is a risk factor involved. And in loan, there is no risk. That's why there is no benefit. The risk must be there. So in gold, just the way we're hoping that it would rise, if for some reason uh, there, there is deflation, then you also have that risk of losing. So because of that risk, you're allowed to do the transaction in gold or silver or any other, any other material. As long as you're doing it in that, it's okay. 
But if you are not doing it and you're doing it in currency, you are only looking for inflation, but in deflation, it will not, it will not play. So that's why it, it will not be allowed. Assalamu yeah. alaikum. Just a follow up a question about this uh, uh, lending money. For example, if you want to lend somebody uh, money, uh, before you give them the cash, you go uh, evaluate the money with gold first. Let's say, for example, you lend somebody uh, $2,000 for five years. Before you give them the cash, you have to evaluate the money with gold first. And then uh, in five years, when they uh, return the money, we'll go again to uh, evaluate that amount of money with gold and see how much. Uh, 20, for example, 20 grams of uh, gold how much it will cost in five years. Is that uh, feasible or doable or? When it comes to, for example, gold versus gold, right? This is the whole thing about, if you're gonna, for example, sell gold for silver or gold for cash, it has to be done right away. If it's done over a time, then this is a type of riba interest. If I say I'm gonna give you gold right now and later on you pay me cash over some time, then no. If you're gonna have the transaction, if it's an actual transaction, it's gold versus gold at that time, or gold versus silver, right there. But if it's going to be like a loan, then either I give it to you in gold and you give me back gold, or I give you cash and you give me back cash. It cannot be I give you uh, cash right now, and in the back of our mind, it's like, okay, this is how much it's worth in gold, and then when you give it back to me, it's going to be, correct? Um, the the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, al-dhahabu bil-dhahabi, ribban illa ha'a wa ha'a. That's the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that the gold uh, should be hands in hands, like meaning it should be immediately. So when the main concept behind actual borrowing is that you're not allowed to benefit off of this type of transaction. So when we are converting over, now what we're doing is we're saying, okay, gold is worth this much at this time, but we're not giving gold. So that's where it becomes a problem. Okay. If you're giving actual gold and you're giving actual silver, then that would translate exactly to dirham or dinanir. So th that's why it's a little bit different. Yeah. I think um, uh, the brothers are here for a salah as well. Uh, we'll be laying it. Okay. So go ahead. No, uh, we'll just a quick question about uh, uh, Islamic uh, uh, loan for uh, buying a house. Is it halal or haram? Uh, for uh, buying a house? Yes. Yeah. So basically, they, um, uh, the, the, the rules of riba will not change. The fact of they are people lending money on interest. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he talked about riba and khamar and certain aspects of it, he said whether you're taking it, you're giving it, you're part of it, you're writing it, all of the people are equally responsible. And there, there is no room for it. And alhamdulillah, this was a, a, a concern maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. But alhamdulillah, since now, there are actual halal uh, uh, options available. And the way they do it, they do it in the form of musharaka, where they actually come into partnership with you. And because of musharaka and murabaha and these concepts, now alhamdulillah, there's actually a right way of doing it. So those questions will no longer even be valid because of, of those options being available. Exactly. If it's Islamic bank, uh, Islamic mortgage, then they, the concept is how Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam taught us to do it, because it's actually uh, uh, an easy way to avoid any type of disputes. Because the the or you know benefiting off of a loan, those those things will not be valid. That's why. Subhanallah, bihamdi, subhanakallah, bihamdi, nashhadu la ilaha.